Good morning, church. It is good to be up here and to be able to share a word from the Lord today. Is We have a few things I want to just preface before we kind of jump into our passage today. Some of you are thinking, Pastor, it's Senior Sunday. Why are, why are you talking about a really tough text and, and topic at this point? And, and just so you know, if you're visiting or new to our church, uh, right now we're, we're doing something um, called, we're going through a book in the Bible. It's called Expository Preaching. So we, we're looking at every verse or every section of God's Word through that book. And so to, to, to skip that would be a, an omission on my part that I don't want to deal with a tough text. Um, and so part of that is we are continuing in this series in Romans. And so for many, you're going to kind of get a, an outside perspective of looking into what we have been having this conversation really over the past 24 weeks that we've been looking at the book of Romans. And so so I preface to say that, that the second thing that I'll say, if you have young kids, um, if they're under middle school, uh, if they're in fifth grade or below uh, this would be a good time if you're like, hey, I want them to go with, with Betsy into our, our kids area. Now would be a good time to do that. I'm going to pray in just a minute uh, for our sermon. And so if you would like for them to be able to do that uh, during my prayer, you can have them go down there. It's just down this hallway um, and it, it's a room down there. Uh, the second uh, second door on your right as you're exiting the building. And so I just I just want to say that uh, it's not going to be, I, I don't think, too uncomfortable for anything. But but I truly want to be honest because this is an important conversation that needs to be had. It's one that is going on in our culture. It's it's a conversation among young people and adults. And, and what does the Bible say about this? And what's God's word for us today? So that that's the, the, the first thing. I'll, the second thing I want to say, the, the third thing that I want to say is what I might say some of you may not like. You may agree with parts of it. You may not agree with any of it or agree with all of it. But what I hope is, is that we all submit ourselves to God's word, to open ourselves up to what we see in God's word. And with that, when I come to a passage, just so you know, that when I preach and the way I live my life, that I believe all of scripture, all 66 books, are inspired by God. They're breathed by God, and they are there to help shape how we live, not only to what we believe about Jesus, but also how we are to order our lives. Now, we don't do that perfectly, but it is to be the, 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 the measuring stick of how we are to order our lives. And with that, the, the lens that I see that through is through the cross and the resurrection. That everything, when I am reading the Old Testament, I read it through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. When we see Paul's words, it is through the cross and the resurrection that he's writing. So as we talk about this, church, I'm just trying to, to preface a few things because there, there isn't time and space to answer all the questions. There isn't time and space to, to clarify every remark that I might make. And so I'm wading into some really difficult waters today with the possibility that I might be misunderstood. And I'll say, if you have questions, and I would love to talk to you more about this. But at this point, I want to just pray to open ourselves up and open ourselves up to God at this time. And for parents, if you have young ones, this would be a time that you can move them out to, to, to our kids' worship time. Father, we come before you. We thank you for this time. I pray, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you open up our hearts and our ears to you. Lord, 
to let us see your truthfulness of your word and how it impacts each and every one of us. I pray, Lord, that we also today see your mercy and your grace in ways we've never experienced before tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago when we were in Pullman, Jackson, my oldest son, his pediatrician was a member at our church and he, he loves the flashers and I love the flashers too and he bought a drift boat and so I talked him in saying hey I really want to learn how to uh, be behind the oars on a drift boat I want to be able to go down a river and to navigate it and it was a bad choice when I started to do that it's a lot more difficult than you can imagine it's scary because there's rapids and you can flip the boat and all these things but the beautiful thing about that opportunity that I had with him is not only learning about fly fishing, but it's with all things in the outdoors. When you go hunting or you go fishing, it's the conversations that you get to have with somebody in that process. And here I was, I was 27 years old, fresh out of seminary, and had lots of questions. I mean, I was working at a state secular university. I mean, the conversations that college students were having and conversations that were taking place on campus were, were somewhat new to me. Not that I hadn't studied them in God's Word, but but how does this play out in real life? And I asked him a question because I know, as you probably well, as, as well know, that sometimes life, we can look around and it's not as it should be, right? I use this phrase all the time. We can look around and see that there's brokenness throughout all of life. That each and every one of us also experiences brokenness in some ways. I mean, I know that. And, and I had a question because I was wrestling with something. I asked him, if, as a pediatrician, what do you tell a family that when their child is born, they're not male or female? Or what if they're intersex? Or, or hermaphrodite? Because it happens. Just in life, it happens. And here I am just thinking through not only Scripture, but just as a young parent now, what do you tell that family? Because you start thinking, it starts to get personal at this point. Well, I know what God's Word says. But, but, and then I see the experience of someone. What do you say to them? And we talked and we had a conversation about, you know, God's Word and, and what He would say and and it ultimately came down to something that I, I'd come to realize and believe, but, but he put it in such an eloquent way. He said, Kevin, we all experience the fall differently. And for that child, whether their parents recognize it or not, because it's a, in a very secular place where people don't know the Lord as much as what you may find around here, but the pain doesn't go away. But for me... It's a way that that child experiences the fall. And it began to really help me understand, too, really this brokenness that we all experience. You see, we all experience the fall differently. Every single one of us. We experience the fall differently. It manifests itself differently in all of our lives. Think about addictions. 
just one example of how someone experiences the fall or think about cancer. Cancer wasn't a part of what God intended for the world. But we all experience the fall in different ways. Which means that we are all fallen and broken people. It manifests itself differently. But you see, the solution for everyone is the same. The solution for everyone is the same. And you see, this is Paul's point in Romans 1. It's one of the most profound chapters of all of the New Testament. And perhaps all of Scripture. Paul is talking about really the cause, the root of sin. And what he's already said is that we exchange the truth of God for a lie. That really, at the bottom of the pile, if we get down to to brass tacks, so to speak, we have a heart problem. And it's at our heart that we want to be ourselves God. And the heart is an idol factory. We take what God intended for good and we twist it into something that we want it to be. And it becomes something not what God intended. We don't worship the creator, but we worship the creature. The man-made thing that we can control, but that thing will always let you down. Paul has already said that we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And in these verses today, in verses 26 through 32 of chapter 1, Paul is laying out the effects of sin. He's laying out the effects of sin and what it impacts in our world. In verse 26, we see sin impacting the physical world. It says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves due penalty for their error. So why all of a sudden? Paul's talking about that we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Why does he now single out homosexuality? That's what he's describing in these two verses. Does Paul think that this is worse than the other sins? Paul's very aware of sexual immorality. He, he's written about it in 1 Corinthians. He lives in the Greco-Roman culture. So why does he single this out in these verses? And what we have to keep in mind goes back to this cause and effect. Is that what Paul is describing throughout chapter 1 is this idea of how sin has corrupted everything. That what God intended from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, because sin is born into the world, that what it does is it distorts all those things. It distorts even our sexuality. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's not just singling out homosexuality, but what he's doing is that he is singling out how these unnatural relationships are a manifestation of sin in the world. That's what he's getting at. 
You see, Genesis 1 is this beautiful thing where God created and it was good. And what does he, on the last day, what does he create? Male and female, he creates humanity. And he says it's good, then he rests. And we see then Genesis 3, the story of this, the, the garden. And, and, and again, God's ordered creation, but then sin, it distorts it. And, and that's church, we have to understand that each and every one of us experienced that fall from Genesis 3 onwards. The Bible is then about of God of undoing the events of Genesis 3. How sin was born into the world through one man, and then it's through one man that salvation comes. And so what he is saying here is that what God has created and intended for good that it manifests itself in a way that is broken in the world because of sin. And I really think, too, at this point, that Paul has also in mind any relationship outside of what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 that specifically talks about that marriage is between a man and a woman and that a, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. That anything outside of that, you see the brokenness of sin in the world. And so Paul is describing something of what he sees in this physical world because church, I think, and we're going to talk about this in more details in a moment. We're going to finish looking at 28 through 32. But we think our culture is somewhat kind of corrupt. But you have no idea, no idea the corruption and, and what was plaguing the Greco-Roman culture. It would make all of us blush upon reading some of those things. But Paul's intent is to show how at this point the, the effects of sin in the physical world. And then we see then Paul point to not just the physical but the mental world and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done God gave them up to a debased mind and if you can get through verses 29 through 31 congratulations and you're a better human being than I am But if this list doesn't make you weep when you read it, if it doesn't confront you with your own sin and your own brokenness, they were what? Filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish and faithless, heartless and ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval of them. So Paul turns now from the physical manifestations of brokenness and sin in the world, and he moves on to I think Paul would even say an even more sinister 
manifestation of him in the world. It's a great smile. It's why he also writes in Romans 12, what? Do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul knew what a debased mind leads to in life. And these 21 descriptors, it's an illustrative list. It's not exhaustive. But it speaks to the brokenness of individuals. I think each and every one of us can find ourselves on that list. You know, I've come across people that it just seems like they're deceitful all the time. They're filled with deceit. It manifests, the, the sin in their life manifests in such a way that they are deceitful people. There are people who are gossipers. No matter what they do in life, it seems like they're always talking about something. They know everything about everything. And for some reason, we don't think about it the same way that we do these other verses, do we? That's often the case, isn't it? Our sin is never as bad as someone else's sin. And I always have a problem with someone else's sin, but if you talk to me about my sin, wait a second, Pastor, you're stepping on my toes. It gets too personal. But that's not what Paul is doing here. He is lumping everybody, everybody, into this brokenness in the world, the way we all experience it. We all experience the fall differently. Every one of us. And without God intervening, without God putting the world to rights, We can never be put back right with God. And so what I want to do now is I want to talk more a little bit about verses 26 and 27. And the reason why I want to talk about it is because it's such a prevalent thing within our culture. Talking about sexuality of any kind. I mean, right now the conversation, which is for another day and possibly another sermon about transgenderism. And and what's the response of the church and how do we navigate that? How do we square that? What do we see in Scripture? And so what I want to do is just talk about this for just a moment. Not because it's the worst sin of all the sins, because it's not. But I think as Christians, if you're a follower of Christ and you're committed to God's Word, that it is authoritative in your life and matters of faith and practice, then you need to know why you believe what you believe. And if you're not, and you're here today, and you have questions, but hey, why? Then I hope that you'll begin to see, I think, the beauty of the gospel, of the hope and the restoration that Jesus brings. You see, homosexuality or sexuality in general, in the ancient culture, was something that Paul and others would have been very familiar with. I mean, you just can go read different philosophers. Plutarch is one of them. You can read about what he wrote about love and same-sex attraction and all this stuff. You can just do Google search. You can find it. It's all there. 
Even Nero, who was an emperor later in, in Paul's last of his life, who likely killed Paul. It would baffle you about the marriages that he had. You can see even not just through, through, through the temple prostitution and other things, but that sexual morality just in general was very prevalent. It was very common for a man of, of status and class to be able to not only be married, but also to have a mistress and to have a prostitute and to do all these other things. It was permissible. It was much more based upon these conversations of sexuality and what one could or could not do was class structure. If you were in a lower class, then there were certain expectations. If you're in a higher class, if you're a Roman citizen, there's things you could not do. So all of this stuff, the, the conversation for Paul as he's writing this, is one we think, well, man, they, they just built really great buildings. And they did do that, but, but Paul was acutely aware of this conversation that was going on. And, and what we see throughout Scripture, and particularly in Judaism, while pagans, the Greeks, and the Romans, and others had a very fluid understanding of sexuality, Israel, Jews, did not. They had a very firm commitment to sexuality and to what God had called them to. And you see a very consistent line from the founding of Israel throughout their time into Jesus' time, a very consistent, this is what we believe about sexuality, this is what is permittable, this is what's not permittable. This is what God intended in the way we try to pursue as best as possible. So that I say that because people often will think, well, Kevin, they weren't very enlightened. Can really the Bible speak into this conversation? Can it really speak to what we're talking about and to this conversation? And I will say it can, and it does. So the question of homosexuality, what does the Bible say about it? Is it right? Is it wrong? What does that look like? Well, there's three passages. And this is part of the reason why we're looking at it, is that Romans 1, 26 through 27 is one of Paul's lengthiest conversations about it. It's only two verses. But he actually speaks about it in two other occasions. The first comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, and 1 Timothy Chapter 1, I believe verse 15, 9 through 10, excuse me, 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. It's there that we see Paul addressed in some capacity the question of homosexuality and is it permittable or is it not permittable. So if you would turn with me, we're going to jump to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. The, the verse will be up here on the screen. But if you have your Bibles, I'll encourage you to, to turn there to, with me. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, it says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. So here we see the first time, the first, the second instance of Paul referring to homosexuality. We're not going to look at the first Timothy passages because it's pretty much identical to what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, our English translation, translation it, it doesn't reveal all of what we see in the Greek. 
there are some words in there that are very significant for us to understand about what is Paul getting at. And so there's two Greek words that I want you to, to write down to know. You can go, again, these are online. If you, you have questions, you can, there's Bible apps, there's Greek study, all this stuff you can go look up to yourself. But in verse 9, when Paul writes, nor men who practice homosexuality, he has two Greek words in there. And the first is malakoi. And what malakoi means, is it, it, it literally means soft. This is a form of pedestal at this time in, in the ancient culture. So it was very custom, a, a custom and common in Greco-Roman culture for an adult male to take a young boy and to be in a relationship with that person. It was socially acceptable. And so this word that we see right there, Paul is grouping into that. So pedestry is forbidden. Everyone in here would be like, yes, I agree with that. Paul is condemning that practice. But then there's a second Greek word that Paul lists there. And it's called arsenokute. You can see it right there. It's spelled right there. Arson, it comes from two, two words that Paul basically smashes together. The first word of that is arson, which means male. And kutai is bed or to lie. And Paul basically forms a compound word to describe a practice of what is not permittable. That basically man shouldn't lie with another man. And he pulls this word from, and again, people will say, well, you know, we can't ever go to the Old Testament on this conversation, but, but that's just not true. You see, when Paul is quoting this word right here, he pulls it from the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 18, verse, verse 22, and Leviticus 20, verse 13. And we see these two words in the Old Testament. Now, Paul read from not a Hebrew Bible, but he read from what's called the Greek Septuagint. It's the Old Testament, but in Greek. And if you go find, you can find it online. Just type in LXX, and it'll come up. And you can go, and you can see the Bible that Paul would have read. And it has a word, arson, which is mel, and this word, kutai, which means bed or to lie. And what Paul does is he gets those two words, and he uses them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, and then in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So Paul has in mind the Old Testament prohibition of a man lying with another man or a woman lying with a woman. Paul is saying this is not permittable. And again, I just said at that point, the Old Testament, this trajectory of sexuality in the Old Testament as it continued into the New Testament was consistent. We even see in Acts chapter 15, verse 29, after Gentiles are brought into the fold. The gospel had gone to Gentiles at this point. And what do they say to those Gentiles, to Paul and others as they continue this Gentile mission? What do they tell them? They ask them to refrain from sexual immorality. Now, there is another word that Paul uses for sexual immorality. It's called porneia. 
And Paul often uses it as a general term of any type of sexual activity outside of the bonds of a male and female husband and wife relationship. Paul often includes porneia as well. So that sexually immoral that we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Can we go back to that slide, guys? When he says there, do not be deceived nor the sexually immoral. That's that word porneia. He had just condemned the Corinthians in chapter 5 because a man was sleeping with his stepmom. And he said, this practice is unacceptable. It's not permittable. And so what Paul does when we read the New Testament, when we read the New Testament, that the act of homosexuality goes against God's will, just as having an affair, just as sleeping with someone who's not your wife stands outside of God's will. And what Paul has in mind when we look at those passages in, in Romans 1, in 1 Corinthians, and 1 Timothy, it's always the act. It's always the act. And I think that's significant for us to understand that Paul is referring to the act because, you see, church, there are some that we likely all know, and perhaps even some here today, who struggle with same-sex attraction. I'm not foolish to think that it hasn't touched at least everyone in some way, shape, or form in this congregation. Because it has. People I know, people I care for. There's even some who struggle with gender dysphoria. Struggling with what gender they are. And what Paul is saying, and what I want to say clearly at this point, is that Paul always has in mind an act of doing something. So if you're here or you know of someone and they are gay, they might identify as gay. They struggle with that. Being gay does not make you a sinner. Let me just say that again. Being gay does not make you a sinner. You know what? I, you want to know what makes you a sinner? The moment you were born, you were a sinner. That every single one of us, every single one of us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And for the person who might say, declare they are gay, I would say it's a way you are experiencing the fall. The person who struggles with gender dysphoria, it's a way that person experiences the fall. The, the, to the person who constantly wants to, to maybe sleep around, they have an addiction, I, I, I just, I can't, I can't get enough, and so they continue to, to perhaps cheat on a spouse. They can't control it. Perhaps that's a way you experience the fall, just as addiction is a way we experience the fall. Church, we are all sinners. 
But unfortunately, I think so often in this conversation in the church is that we have struggled with talking about sexuality in general, but also homosexuality. And we can go to one side where we say, you know what, it's my body. I can do what I want. What is living my life have to do with what I believe in my heart? But I would say there's a connection between morality and spirituality. With the way you live your life, it matters to God. Now, you see, I'm not going to get up here and tell you, well, you know, guys, this is why you need to be abstinent. Why you don't need to sleep around with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Why you don't need to have an affair. Why you don't need to do this. Whatever the case may be, but you see, what we see in Scripture is that God cares about our physical bodies. He cares about them so much that he came to be just like us. And that he was physically resurrected from the grave. And when you give your life to Jesus, you are no longer an old creation, but a new creation. And it's there that we become part of the body of very much in the same way that Israel it paints this picture that Israel was to be married to God you hear these stories and why was God punishing Israel it was because of their unfaithfulness but God loves them through their unfaithfulness and so why it matters what we do with our bodies is because it matters to God that in his future kingdom, that our bodies will be a part of that resurrection. We see Paul go on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, to one flee from sexual immorality. That you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, God dwelling inside of you. What we do with our bodies, it matters. Some might even say, well, Kevin, I was born this way. I was born this way, Pastor. You might have heard someone say that. Well, this is just how I am. And without getting into the weeds of that conversation, even granted, perhaps you are. What we see is through the gospel, when we submit our life to the gospel, that God wants to do a new thing through us. That he doesn't just want to leave us where we are. That's just like if someone were to tell me, Kevin, I was born a gossip. And the answer would be yes. We all know that. If they're telling you that, they're probably a gossip. Or they're boastful or they're haughty. But God doesn't want to leave you there. He doesn't want you to continue to be boastful and haughty or slanderous or malicious. But he wants to take you and to change you. Renew your mind. And so often we think we can do what we want because it's our own body, but when you become a follower of Christ, it's not about you, it's about Jesus. That includes your body. God cares about your sexuality. He cares what you do with your body. And he's offering something so much more beautiful. That when you give those things up in return, you see the power of 
the gospel play out in your life. When you give up those things, the desires of this world, there's something beautiful that happens. But another way that the church has struggled with this issue is that we think it's just the worst sin. That homosexuality is the worst sin. And and I'll tell you, church, it's not. We don't ever really see Jesus address the issue of homosexuality. Does it mean that he wasn't aware of it, didn't know about it? He knew the scriptures in the Old Testament. He spoke about marriage between marriage between a male and a female. We see Jesus talk about that, but but you know what we see Jesus spend a lot of time on? Religious leaders, right? That's who he spends most of his time getting after. Because they were hypocrites. You say one thing, and then you go and do another thing. You think you have it all figured out, but then we see Jesus constantly rebuking those who are prideful, those who are greedy, those who have missed what he has come to do. And the church, historically, has done a bad job in saying that this is the worst sin, and if you are gay or you struggle with this, then we don't want you in this place. And people have been harmed. Because you see, most people, from my conversations, that experience same-sex attraction, those same-sex desires, it's often, one, a question of theodicy. Kevin, why did God make me this way? Why do I I even experience these things? And it's the beginning of helping understand the pervasiveness of sin. And what does it mean for us as a church to come alongside those who are broken and hurting? And too often we whitewash the verses from 28 through 32. Those sins that manifest themselves, I would say, more often in the life of the church. We focus so heavily on verses 26 and 27 that we forget 28 and 29 and 30 and 31. And what we do is we make the gospel a mockery to the world. It's no wonder that the world can look at the church and say, y'all focus on this issue, but there's rampant infidelity in your own churches, and yet you don't talk about that. Where all these other sins are being manifested them themselves out in the church, how are you addressing those things? And what I often have to say is, we're not wrong sometimes. We turn a blind eye again to the sins that we don't want to talk about or to deal with. And you might be saying, well, pastor, but some of them, those people, they're living in unrepentant sin. Well, to tell you, I'm sure there's some unrepentant sinners in our midst today. In fact, that I think all of us at some point can be an unrepentant sinner. And Paul understood that he was the chief sinner. That we have to understand our own sin. And that the hope of the gospel is about repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. That we address all sin particularly those that bring strife and gossip and slander and deceit to the body. 
And lastly, who gets to go to heaven? The question I often hear, can someone who's gay go to heaven, Kevin? And I'd ask you just the question in response, can a rich person go to heaven? See, Jesus told two stories in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 18, 18 through 30, he talks about this rich young ruler. And he says, I've done everything right, Jesus. I followed all the laws. I've done everything right. And what did Jesus tell him to do? Go and sell everything that you have and do what? Follow me. And the man turned away because what? He had great wealth. Then you flip over another chapter and you see another rich man. In Luke 19, 1 through 10, and what do we see? A guy named Zacchaeus who visited, Jesus visited his house and the Lord came to his house and we see something, this transformation in Zacchaeus' life. A giving up of things in order to do what? To follow Jesus. You see, Romans 1 speaks to this idea that we make idols for ourselves. We make idols out of our sexuality, out of the things that we worship, our money, our job. But Paul says that you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, there's a professor, church, hang with me. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield. She was a lesbian, a self-identified lesbian. She was a professor at Syracuse University. She taught women's studies for years, and she was saved. She came to know the Lord through Romans 1. Because she said that Romans 1 is not about the manifestation, is not about the manifestations of sin in the world, but who are you worshiping? She writes this. Homosexuality is not the core of our rebellion against God. A desire to be godless. A desire to be the one who gets to declare good and evil playing judge rather than be judged. A desire to use God's creation for our own gratification rather than with pleasure and for his glory. You see, at the root for all of us is the desire to be in control. To worship the creature rather than the creator. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is that whether you're here today and you're rich or poor, whether you're white or black or brown or whether you're gay or straight, or you're Jew or Gentile or male or female, the way you experience salvation, the power of the gospel is the same for all of us. It's by giving up control of your life. It's by allowing Jesus to be at the center of your life, to shape your aim and your heart. And yes, there is the residual effects of sin in our life, thorns that may never go away. But through the power of the gospel, you can say and hear God say to you, my grace is sufficient. What have you made the center of your life? What idols have you created? What are you holding on to? What identity are you finding your hope in as opposed to your identity that can only be found in Christ Jesus? Let us pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for this day. I pray, Lord, 
that in this time that you speak to us, that if there are some here today who are struggling, I pray, Lord, that they would experience your grace and your mercy like never before. That you convict them and confront them with their sin, but God, that you would pave the way through Christ Jesus.